Father in heaven, thank you uh, for bringing us here today. Thank you for this month of celebrating your birth and looking forward to your second coming. Thank you for rescuing us out of darkness through your death and resurrection. Thank you for giving us hope, even in the times when we don't feel like we have hope. Lord, I um, ask that you would bring peace upon us right now, and that your Holy Spirit would comfort our souls and our hearts in the places where we're hurting, and give us inspiration um, to grab hold of what is true today. And I ask that in your holy name. Amen. So, uh, I'm trying out Rod's voice. He emailed it to me, and so I'm trying to do that. I've, I've had a cold, and I don't, didn't know if I was going to make it today. Um, and I've kind of worked on this message for a while, and it's come out a couple different ways. It's a freebie for me, which means I get to talk about what I want to talk about mostly, and then try to work in our 20 prayers. So we'll see how that works. Uh, and you're like, what are the 20 prayers? For those of you who are new, well, I'll explain them. But I want to start with um, that when I was little, and probably I mean when I think of myself as little, basically when I was, you know, nine, ten years old, younger than that. Like, I wanted to be a superhero, right? I, there are pictures of me, I guess maybe I wanted to be a cowboy. There are pictures of me with holsters and guns, you know, standing next to the, you know, cowboys at old Tucson, like, which was the classic picture for every kid who grew up in the 70s. I mean, the only place in Tucson you had to go was old Tucson. That was, that wasn't a lot for us to do. So we all had that picture, but we wanted to, I wanted to be a superhero. And I think at some level what I wanted was to be noticed, but I also wanted to do something meaningful, right? I wanted to be important. And, and I think it's something that gets put in all of our hearts as kids. You know, there's this innocence where we don't think that anything is impossible as a child. Like children, you know, I was watching these TED Talks on drawing, and, and he was talking about children don't think they can't draw. It's just adults who think they can't draw, right? We, we think... We can do anything, and we want to be great, right? And when I was a kid, I was inspired by stories, um, stories of superheroes. And one particular story uh, that I read a long time ago, and then I found again and remembered that I'd read it, and then I started researching it, and I'm not even sure this is true. I know elements of this story is true, but it's a story out of church history, about these men, and they're called, they were called, they were Nero's fighters, and they were called the Emperor's Wrestlers, and there were 40 of them. And they were the greatest warriors of Rome. And they were always on the front lines and out in the boonies, and they were the one who had all the great exploits. Um, and they had a song that went kind of like this, and I'll read it to you. It said, We the wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Emperor, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. Right, So they were kind of a jolly, in this story, a jolly group of people uh, who killed everybody. Now, at least in the story that I read recently, uh, and this part, I just, uh, anyway, you're gonna, parts of this story is true, I'm telling you the legendary story. These people supposedly, one of their jobs was to hunt down Christians and to either capture them or to execute them. But Nero apparently got word when they were out in Gaul fighting that many of his 40 wrestlers had become Christians. 
And so he sends a, a whatever you send, not an email. He sends a note, which probably took a very long time, to get to this centurion named Vespian, who uh, was the commander of these 40, um, and saying, your ranks have begun to follow Christ, and you need to eradicate him and deal with this. So Vespian was surprised, calls his 40 wrestlers forward, and he says, well, any of you who have you know, succumb to the faith in Christ or have come, become Christians, step forward, and all 40 of them step forward. And he's kind of shocked by this, so he says, well, I'm going to give you until the end of the, of the day. Same thing happens, all 40 step forward. Now, he's concerned, because these are the greatest warriors of Rome, that he doesn't want his other shoulder, soldiers to have their blood on their hands. Like, so they decide to strip them all naked and send them out into the middle of this lake that's frozen over until they'll recant their faith. And so what could be heard then, them singing was, we 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown over and over again. And it got fainter and fainter and then one of them finally crawls to the edge and recount, recants Christ, but Vespian is so overwhelmed by this and by their staunch like resistance that he strips himself naked and runs out into the middle of the lake and begins to sing, We forty wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. Now, as a kid, I loved those stories. I liked the amazing hero story. I wanted to be a hero. I wanted to have meaning. I I would read those and get excited. People risking their life for Christ. People willing to give up everything. Well, one of the uh, advantages I had, and maybe not all of you have had this, is that I grew up in the church. And as a little kid, in my culture in the church, we did a lot of Old Testament. Like, we learned all about the Old Testament stories. Um... Sometimes I wonder why we learned about all the Old Testament stories, because now, I don't know, some of them are interesting. Um, but the one that I would read over and over again when I could read um, was about David's mighty men, right? men of courage, because I wanted to be like them. And it's funny, you know, boys, and even girls do this, like when you send people out into the backyard, immediately they find sticks and begin to battle and begin to like show their, you know, heroness, their, their, their courage, their bravery, they're building forts, they're throwing rocks, they're building swords. That's what they do. And, you know, making house while the war is happening. Um, but in Second Samuel chapter 23, starting in verse 8, there's a list of David's men. And they would probably kill me because I'm going to butcher their names and they're great warriors. Um, these are the names of David's mighty men. Joseph Bahasabeth, a Tachamanite, was the chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Which, if you think about space-wise, hopefully he had a lot of space, because that's a lot of people. Um, but and it continues. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Ahohite, as one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pass Demon for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground 
and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shema, son of Agi the Herite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. It goes on, and there's even some more crazy stories in there. But I, I like these two men because they do something very interesting. In the face of something terrifying, an oncoming army, when everybody else runs away, it says they took their stand or they stood their ground. There's something about that that for me gets me excited, but I remember being a kid imagining that. This man standing in a lentil field while everyone is running around, holding his sword, waiting as the Philistines come. I, I got excited about that. As an adult, it's interesting, as I think about being a kid, like the whole idea of being a hero has disappeared at some level, right? The idea of having courage has gotten kind of mundane. I mean, Mostly, I got to pay my bills and there's mortgage and I got to deal with all these complex relationships with my family and, and my church. And like, it, it kind of almost feels like there isn't any real adventure in those kinds of things. Like, I've, I've kind of pushed that longing to have courage. Like, I don't know where the places are to stand my ground. Like, I'm not, there aren't the epics in my life. Like, I'm not standing in a lentil field waiting for the Philistines. Like, this is not my story at this point. And yet, there's something in me, even now, if I'm honest, that says, I want to be great. Not great in the sense that everybody looks at me, though I would like that, I'll be honest. But great in the sense that I, like, have meaning. Like, that I leave this world with some kind of impact. Like that people are changed because of the choices that I make. Right? I, I want that. And, and I think all of us actually want that. If we can just take a moment, we want to have meaning. Right? We want to we do something great. And yet everything seems so dark a lot of times. Everything seems so hard or just kind of mundane or ordinary. Right? Well, I want to look at, you heard the passage read out of Isaiah 50, and I just want to look at it really quickly. Um, because this is, if you don't know, Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet, and there are three songs within Isaiah that are talking about Jesus as a, in a prophetic sense, and they are... Um, singing, they're kind of songs about what the Messiah is going to be like and who he's going to be. And this is the third one. And I just wanted to re reread that chunk that Chris read for you. Um, it's a, the servant is speaking and he says this, The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. 
The sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Now in verse 7, that little part where, and this is like one of my favorite parts of Isaiah, is he, it says he set his face like flint. is referring to a passage in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus is at the place where he is ready and knows it's his time to ascend into heaven. And he's going to have to face being crucified. And it says that he faced towards Jerusalem and he went resolutely. Right? He and Isaiah is kind of alluding to that. He set his face like flint, like a hardened towards a certain direction. You're not going to turn him. You're not going to push him. You're not going to knock him out of the way. He was headed in this direction. One of the things that I've been thinking about when it comes to being a hero and wanting to be great is that the person that we're offered in the church who is the greatest is Jesus. Right? The hero that you and I are invited to imitate and the one who is the greatest is Jesus. Like a guy who stands in a field and kills 800 men has nothing to Jesus. And so this prophetic statement actually gives me some sense of what it might require for you and I to take our stand in certain areas of our life, for you and I to be heroes. What does it actually look like? How do you, you and I determine to move in a certain direction? What does that look like? Well, the first observation I just want to make out of the story out of Samuel and here is that it seems that both of them, all those heroes and Jesus, the servant in Isaiah, are available. They're there, right? They show up. So part of being a hero, part of being courageous, whatever it is, is actually showing up, being in the place that you need to be. But there's a clue in this text as to how you end up having the courage to do that. How do you stand in the lentil field and not run away from the things that you're afraid of and that you have to face? How do you become a hero, a, a mighty warrior of the kingdom of God? Well, all of these different things, it talks about your tongue, but it, it, it comes from instruction with God. Your ears, because you hear something from God. Right? All of these things point towards the fact that heroes are people who have intimacy with God. Heroes are people who actually have an intimate relationship with God. The only way that you and I can be great, to be some, to have meaning and impact, is that we have to have a relationship with God. But what I love about Isaiah 7 is that it says, verse 7, 57, it says that um, he will help me. I think that that's really key. Though a lot of times, when I think about the hard things in my life, the risks I want to take, maybe they're, maybe they're just things in my marriage. Maybe they're ways that I would really like to change the way I do things here at the church, say. Or how I operate with my kids. Or some discipline. All those things. Like a lot of times, I believe it requires me. Right? Because when I say you have to show up, you think, oh, it's all me. No. 
when you and I have an intimate relationship with God and we stand in the lentil field, the metaphorical lentil field, whatever that is for you, it's very clear in verse 7 that when we do that, the sovereign Lord will help us and we will not be put to disgrace. Now, what I, what I guess I'm trying to encourage all of us towards this year is to maybe think about where God is asking you to be courageous. Where is God asking you to do something different? Where is God asking you to take a risk? Where is God asking you to stand in places where when you look around, everybody else is running away? Where is he asking you to step into places that might feel super empty and uncomfortable for you? And all you want to do is run away. Where, where are those places? The invitation, I think, from, from Isaiah, from looking at these heroes from Jesus, is that when we show up, when we step into those places, God will help us and we won't be disgraced. Now, on the other hand, when we think about being great, a lot of times as Christians, we're like, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Our job is not to be great, right? We're all supposed to be humble, Right? Not call attention to ourselves. Well, because the reason that is, is we've bought into the worldly greatness. Me, I would like to be greater than all of you. Right? That we compare ourselves to one another. But God, Jesus never says greatness is wrong. He actually calls all of us to be great because he created you and designed you in such a way where it's not, you're not like a throwaway thing. Like you're not like, like oh yeah, well, I created like 10 of those, so. You know, there are, there are 10 Eric's, so I don't need to worry about it. Like, we just pump those models out all the time. Right? No, no, there's a uniqueness that God created in you, and, and his calling and greatness is for you to be everything that he created you to be. And the world pounds against that, and the enemy pounds against that, and your own wanting to be selfish and just kind of be safe pounds against that, your sin your fear, your anxiety, right? And yet, there's a story in Matthew chapter 20 um, where there are these two guys who are called the sons of thunder. And this is kind of, this is where Jesus lays out what great is. But I just want to walk through this story because these guys are known as the sons of thunder. They wanted to pour fire down on, on towns that rejected them. Right? These guys are these guys are like the first century heroes, or at least they want to be. And then look how this story kind of begins. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking him for a favor. I love this. I'm assuming every mom is like this, but it seems like Jewish moms might be more like this. They're like, my sons are the best, right? I can, and she's dragging them along, and they're like, come on, mom. Like, stop, stop. And Jesus says, what do you want? And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And he replies, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, this is interesting, he looks around mom at them and says, can you drink this cup? I am going to drink. And the text says, we can I don't know if they said it that way. I think they're like, oh, Mom, yes, okay, yeah, we'll do it. They answered. And Jesus said to them, 
You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those with whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus gives us the route to being a hero in the kingdom of God. Because there's only one man, right, who is the greatest of all, and that was Jesus. And he says that I didn't come to be served, but to be to serve and to be a ransom for many. Like I came as the most powerful man ever, the one who created and spoke everything in existence, and I came to pour out my life. You know, in theology, it's the word we use is a is kenosis. It's the outpouring of everything, just the complete outpouring. Jesus poured his life out for us. The invitation then to being great is not for you, for me to do all the cool things, stand in the lentil field, kill a bunch of people, get it into the book of, you know, Samuel. That's not it. What it is, is that for me to be great, for me to be a hero in the kingdom of God, a hero at the village, is to be someone who has poured out my life for you. Everything that I possess, all the gifts, the strengths, everything poured out for you. That makes me a hero. When I pour out me for you and for the community, then I'm a hero. Because I'm following in the footsteps of a hero, right? The hero. The one who answers the question of who can beat Superman and One Punch Man, right? For those of you who know those references, right? Jesus. Now, I think that's important because that changes the way you do work. That changes the way you use your talents and skills. That changes the way you understand who you are as a person. Because the invitation when you step into the kingdom of God is to put on your costume and go serve. To take everything that you are good at and give it to me. And to the people around you. All your time, your money, your energy, everything is to lay it out. Not to hold it tightly, but to pour it out for people. Because what happens when you do that is that pushes you to the front lines in all the areas of your life. Think about it what happens in your marriage. Right? When you say, this isn't about me. I'm going to pour out everything I have for you. All my kindness, all my skill, all my gifts, everything is yours. I'm going to pour those out for you. Well, all of a sudden that puts you in an extremely vulnerable place in any kind of relationship, in any kind of place, because that person can reject it, that person can use it, that person can abuse it. Right? And you're back into that Isaiah 50 passage where you offer your cheek, where your beard was pulled, where you're abused. Like, the hero is abused. There's no guarantee that you get deliverance or the cape. Right? You, don't, you get death. The guy standing in the lentils didn't know he was going to live or die. But he stood his ground to defend what he thought was good. So, how do I transition all of that to 20 prayers? Well, 
if you've been around the village for very long, then you've heard this word tossed around, monastic. And you're like, how on earth is the, world, the, church, the village church monastic? Like, there are no monks, there are no nuns. Like, they really aren't very high church, so how are they, like, monastic? Well, you'll notice that in different areas of our church, we do things that are practices together. We practice something, and with an assuredness that other people alongside us are practicing them. So one of the things we do is at the beginning of every year, we write out 20 prayers as a community for each one of us. And what, we, what you're asked to do is sometime in the first week of January is to sit down for a couple hours and write out, or 20 minutes, however long it takes you, but to write out five prayers for yourself, five prayers for your family, five prayers for this church, and five prayers for the community, Tucson or the larger world, depending on how you're connected and things. And then we ask that you pray those all year, knowing that everyone else is praying those and that you update them. So this happened. And then once one of them is answered, and you can publicly say it, then offer it to people. This is what I've been praying, and this is what's happened. Now there's approximately... A hundred people at the village, hundred adults, give or take, you know, plus or minus three, depending on the cold, vacation, and whatever football game is on. Um, like, but if you, if all hundred people wrote twenty prayers, that's two thousand prayers being prayed, right? All year together, that we're saying this is what we want to see God do. So we do it together. So part of what I'm inviting you into is an opportunity to be part of the Village Justice League, right? To do it together. Um, but I'm also asking you to take these prayers and allow them to maybe give you a moment of being a hero, being great, being, an, a, being somebody who's a village hero. And this is how it is. When you pray, and you pray for yourself, for instance, and you say, God, you know, help me lose weight, you can't pray, help me lose weight, and then keep going to fries and getting ice cream. Right? You have to show up in your prayer. Right? You cannot pray, help me reconcile this relationship, and then avoid the person you need to be reconciled with. Right? When you write the prayer down, praying is an invitation at some level for you to show up, to stand your ground in whatever that prayer is to be available for it to happen, right? Because though I do believe that God is sovereign and uh, in, in control of all things, if you're picking a basketball team and you don't show up to the basketball court, you're not going to get to be on the basketball team, right? When they're picking the team, if you're not there, no one's picking you, right? And so part of when you're praying and asking God to do things, you need to show up to be picked, Right? You have, there's an element of your action that has to happen. Your engagement. I'm not guaranteeing that it will all come through. God may say no. You might be, you know, you, you may be used and abused in those things, or things may not come through the way you want them to. But it says that God will help you and you will not be disgraced. So that's, that's one of the invitations. This is a practice. This is part of the monastic village right there. 20 prayers, all of us writing them together and praying them. But I would invite you one more. I want to up the ante 
for those of you who play pokers, poker or, you know, raise the stakes or I don't know. I couldn't think of any other idea to bring it up a little bit here. But I want you to think about what God's calling you to um, in this sense is like as it comes to the village. You know, we say sign up five or six times. Don't sign up five or six times. Sign up ten or twelve times. You know, look around this church and say, oh, do something with someone you don't normally do with. Become friends with somebody you aren't friends with. You see something broken, fix it. You want to engage the neighborhood, engage it. You want to be creative, go, go help us transform our kids' ministry. I could go on and on. You want to see your neighbor become a Christian? Start inviting them over to dinner. Go risk. I'm not saying that any kind of risk will succeed. I'm just saying risk and you will see God show up. I guess the invitation I want to offer all of you this year, 2019, because I think God's doing crazy things, and not just at the village. I think in the next few years, the world is changing, and what God is going to do and the way his spirit is going to fall is different. I'm not saying that he's coming back. I'm just saying it's going to be different. And I want to be part of that. And I think the village has something good to offer into the story of what Jesus is doing. So I want to invite all of you to step up into that. And I want to step up into that. So that's my kind of my end of the year William Wallace charge speech for all of you um, that I'm inviting you all into. I really can't talk anymore, so I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for my community and for uh, the opportunity for me to talk to them. And I just ask that your Holy Spirit would use the words that I've spoken to encourage them in the directions you're calling them and give them the courage in the places of their life where fear exists, where they are running away. Um, give them hope and courage. And help them to write their 20 prayers. I ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.